2: Hello, and welcome to New Books in American Studies. I'm your host, Ryan Shelton, and today I'm so pleased to be joined by David Comline, author of The Common School Awakening, Religion and the Transatlantic Roots of American Public Education, just published in the fall of 2020 by Oxford University Press. David is Associate Professor of Church History at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan. David, it's so great to have you here. Welcome to the show.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. It's great to be here.
2: Well, David, congratulations on the wonderful book. I'm so excited to talk with you about it. But first, I wonder if you would be willing to share with us a little bit about yourself.
1: Yeah, definitely. So uh, I teach mostly church history here at Western Seminary. Lots of survey courses, both halves of the survey, Church History 1 and Church History 2. I went to seminary at Princeton Theological Seminary and graduated in 2008. And then I spent a year in Germany studying at Tübingen on a grant from the Deutsche Akademische Austauschstein, or the German Academic Exchange Service. And then after doing that, I started my PhD in history at the University of Notre Dame. And I spent four years living in South Bend doing that, and then I spent the fifth year of that program living in heidelberg germany uh completing my writing my dissertation and then i moved from there to here in holland michigan for the sixth year of my program and i also did some teaching here in holland and started things up at western
2: well that's wonderful david so i i'm curious as we as we move into your book the common school awakening i wonder if you can help orient us to the field that you're writing into what are some of the the competing origin stories of of American public education and what's the general story that you're trying to tell in the common school awakening?
1: Yeah, great question. So, um, this is something that I had to learn. I'm, I'm trained as a religious historian and I came to this field from the outside. So, uh, I think it's a significant important field, but I'm bringing a, a different take to it than the typical one. Um, Basically, most modern educational history begins with the figure of Elwood Cubberley, who wrote a prominent book in the early 20th century called Public Education in the United States. And Cubberley has this um, sort of progressive narrative of public education uh, moving from this Christian origins to a secular space um and things getting better and better the whole way as we move to more state control over schools Uh, and this is a wonderful thing and this narrative dominates scholarship on american education for really the first half of the 20th century but then in the 50s and especially the 60s that narrative starts to get shaken up and there are a few interventions there that um shift things uh Bernard Bailyn, who becomes a major historian in the field of American history as a whole, writes an early small book um, which basically takes educational history to task as a whole uh, and calls it parochial and says it needs to expand its interests, uh, needs to look beyond schools, needs to look beyond uh, um, itself and just take into interest other accounts take other constant interest. So that's one sort of intervention. The most significant intervention, though, is one uh, made by Michael Katz call, in a book called The Irony of Early School Reform. Um, and he basically looks at this earlier historiography and says it's all hagiographic and it's all, uh, it's far too positive and we need to look at schools as actually instruments of social control. This Mm. isn't a progressive story of increasing democratization. It's rather uh, a repressive story of the moneyed interests uh, forcing the industrial class into schools so they could work better in factories. And that launches a whole new school of what's called the revisionist historiography of people approaching education from sort of that standpoint uh, focusing on, especially on economics and and those factors and that historiography uh, was really vibrant in the 70s and 80s um, and it's still present and around now although I think the field has gotten more diverse uh, and is taking into account more more questions and more more influences but my contribution my my uh, my book is basically trying to enter it into that field and say, okay, so we have these big, large narratives that have been told about American education, um, and the dominating narrative still is this revisionist approach, which highlights economics. And economics is obviously important. We don't want it to just say it's not important, but there are other factors that matter a lot. Uh, and some of these factors actually have been explicitly discounted in Cats uh, and his followers. Uh, Katz explicitly says in the intro to his book that he's not going to look at things like politics, transatlantic influences, and religion, um, <laughs> because he says they were taken, uh, they played too, too, too much of a role in earlier narratives, and maybe that may have been the case. But it's now been seventy years since <laughs> since that was the case, and so it's worthwhile to revisit those 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 influences on this. And so basically. I'm trained as a religious historian, and I bring my religious questions to this, uh, the question of how we get public schools.
0: Hmm.
2: Yeah, David, it's, it's so interesting. And it seems like one of the main stories that you're telling is that there was this moment of religious compromise or religious collaboration that led towards the creation of this school culture, even that, that outlasted that, that very short moment in the history of American religion. Is that, is that an accurate uh, version of the story that you're telling?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. So um, this would be something that's probably familiar to people who study American religion, but not necessarily too familiar outside of that. But there is this sort of broad scale movement in the early 19th century that we might call the second great awakening mm-hmm. um, that manifests itself in revivals and also in the foundation of lots of enterprises to try to improve America. Um, and these enterprises have often been lumped together and called the benevolent empire. So we got Christian people, Christian organizations coming and founding Bible societies, um, missions organizations, and various groups to try to Christianize America, to improve America. And this benevolent empire uh, holds together throughout the first half, the first third of the 19th century. Uh, We get people from across denominations all working together in these various causes, but it starts to break down at the end of the 1830s and at the end of the 1830s we get splits in several denominations the most prominent split is the split in the Presbyterians who split between uh, a group called the new school and the old school in 1837 and at the same time we're also seeing rising immigration and a more significant catholic presence in America and basically by the time you get to the early 1840s the, this common consensus that we had seen drawing together Protestant groups from Unitarians to Presbyterians has broken apart and uh, these groups can no longer agree on a, the same common good, at least when it comes to uh, these organizations that they've been working together to found. And so these organizations all uh, also uh, sort of fall apart for the most part. And we get denominations starting to found their own uh, similar organizations that can do missions or publish pamphlets or things like that. And that's the narrative that is not dis, uh, is not unfamiliar to literature historians, but the fascinating thing is that when you take that narrative and map it on to the, the origins of public education, you find that public education, when you take the long look at it, as I do, sort of comes together in the early to mid-1830s, which is when you get... Christians from across these denominations across these groups, all working together to collaborate, basically using Christian rhetoric, saying, we need to Christianize the country, the best way we can Christianize the country is through public schools. And they look abroad to find examples of how to do this. And then in the 1830s, the end of the 1830s especially, you get really across the states, lots of legislation to centralize and professionalize and systematize public schools. And you get the creation of offices that people can inhabit, like Horace Mann, who's famous as a public school reformer. And you get the rising bureaucracy for schools. And you get teacher training schools. And lots of these sort of hallmarks of public education as we now think of it coalesce in the late 1830s as a result of these christian reformers advocating for these reforms but once the reforms get off the ground the christian reformers stop collaborating (laughs) and by the 1840s especially the end of the 1840s you get the same christian reformers fighting over what should be taught in schools and as a result the larger narrative about Christian schools changes from one that uh, where we need schools to train citizens for uh, the Christian Republic and rather to being one where we need need to train schools to train citizens for working in industry.
2: Hmm. That's fascinating, David. So you've talked about the transatlantic story that, that maybe once was over egged, but now is, is you're trying to bring back in. And so your story starts just outside of London with a, a Quaker named Joseph Lancaster who developed a system called Monitorial Education. What was this system and maybe who were some of the rival figures who were also experimenting with similar modes of of, uh, of education?
1: Yeah, great. So Joseph Lancaster was a Quaker who founded a school uh, called the Borough Road School outside London. And in an attempt to help his school grow, he basically developed this system whereby he would train a group, a small group of students, older students. And then those students would teach their own small group of slightly younger students, who would in turn teach their own small group of slightly younger students all the way down through this pyramid scheme. And by the end of uh, Lancaster's pyramid, he had 1,000 students in one school, all basically under his tutelage, without any other adults, uh, he would teach his ten students who would go all the way down. And uh, he terms his, uh, his so his form, this form of education is called Lancasterianism or monitorial education because the monitors are the older students who teach the younger students. He's not the only person who has this s- scheme of education up and up and running. Um, he. Seems to devise it independently, but at the same time, roughly, that he's making his system, there's also a Church of England clergyman in India who's actually inventing a similar system of uh, sort of this pyramid scheme of teaching. And his name is Andrew Bell. And Andrew Bell develops his system and implements it in India, and then he returns to England and starts to talk about it in England. He also publishes a book about it. And so we get these sort of two rival systems, uh, or two rival origins for the same system, maybe, of monitorial education or Lancasterian education, depending on whose system you like, in the early 1810s in England. And these two rival systems actually come to butt heads um, because Lancaster and the people who use Lancasterian system say that they want to use it to teach their students christianity without sectarianism they want to just teach their students the bible um and lots of english people think great let's we should go ahead and do that but bell who is a a clergyman in the church of england wants to teach not just the bible but also doctrines associated with the church of england and there are people who piggyback on him and his ideas, and uh, there's a woman named Sarah Trimmer who really gets involved in this fight trying to uh, boost Joseph uh, Bell's system as opposed to Lancaster's system. Um, and the this method really remains the dominant method of education in England for a while, but um, the, they're still fighting over whose method it is. And eventually, this method gets picked up and taken into America uh, to sort of start the American story of systematizing and professionalizing schools in America as well.
2: That's right, David. And, and you note that what really becomes popular in America was the non sectarian nature of this and also this, just even the notion of a professional uh, teaching career. Is that is that right?
1: Yep, right. So the Americans pick up definitely on Joseph. Joseph Lancaster's system. They don't want Bell's system because uh, Bell's a, a clergy member in the established church and the Americans are doing away with established church. Uh, but the Americans still are holding strongly to Christianity in some form and they want their Christianity to be Christianity without sectarianism, a, a Christianity that everyone can appeal to, that everyone can agree with. Um, basically, a Christianity rooted in a plain common sense reading of scripture and of the Bible. So uh, the Americans pick up Joseph Lancaster's system um, and it starts to spread across the, the states. And as it does so, uh, we get teachers who um, start to have to learn this method. And as they learn the method of teaching the 10 students who teach the others, uh, they're, they're learning a system of education. They're learning a pedagogical school um, and they're beginning to be able to found schools that can have some lasting impact and some lasting influence. And they're beginning to become, for the first time, or the, uh, lots of people are becoming professional teachers. Um, and so we get this systemization and professionalization just sort of emer- beginning to emerge in In America uh, as a result of Lancaster's impact. Uh, Before Lancaster, schools were often run by college students on a summer vacation. Um, And with Lancaster, it becomes possible to have these larger schools that can be run by teachers using a particular
0: pedagogical method. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Hmm. It's so interesting. I, I, I remember from my public school days, we had monitors, but I think all we did was go get milk from the cafeteria. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's, that's
1: we shift Yeah.
2: <laughs> Um, so we've talked about this transatlantic theme that runs throughout your book. What can you tell us about the traffic of American educational leaders and reformers promoting the American education system abroad? What does that do to kind of influence this um, emerging form of public education?
1: Yeah, right. So one of the major themes of my book is that we get reformers. Uh, I am track mostly American reformers travel to Europe, but they're also European performers who travel to America that I deal with. Um, and this transatlantic influence uh, pervades early education. So we have um, Americans who travel abroad consistently um, in every chapter of the book, uh, and they observe somehow education in Europe. The the question of how closely they observe it varies. Some people go to to Europe to observe education in Europe, and some people go there and just hear something and then come back and are suddenly deemed experts in European education. Um, But they travel to Europe and come back and bring these European ideas to America um and they've looked around in Europe and they saw, saw this, this large systems this bureaucracy of education and they say uh we too can have a, a large system a bureaucracy um we can bring these ideas here and uh we can have state-sponsored schools we can have state offices of public education with people who uh do censuses of schools uh and this is really a consistent theme in early American education um, of all sorts and all varieties. Uh, And I've got a chapter chapter two deals with uh, all different sorts of schools, from uh, schools for the deaf, schools for the blind, schools for the elite, uh, schools for women. In all of these instances, we get people, uh, Americans, traveling abroad, studying Education in Europe and coming back to implement these reforms at home.
2: And then going the other way, a, a big influencer becomes the the Prussian. Is that right? It's it's the Prussian system that's developing in kind of post the post Napoleonic or uh, yep. Napoleonic era yep. that um, right. is the one that really latches on um, among a, a lot of American reformers.
1: Yep, right, exactly. So, so early in the book, we're talking largely about pedagogy. Um, and so we have the Montreal of schools and ways of teaching um, deaf people and blind people, for instance, but then uh, by the time we get to the 1830s, it's not just pedagogy, it's, it's really policy and bureaucracy that we're starting to, to bring from abroad. And so Americans travel uh, most prominently to Prussia because after the Polonic invasions, Prussia reformed its entire educational system. And um, this, the, this system became sort of the most prominent education system in the world. And there are actually reports written on pr- pr- Prussian education. There's a very prominent report on pr- Prussian education written by a French philosopher Uh, named Victor Cousin, who's uh, still a significant French figure um, and was in charge of education in France. And he uh, writes this report on the Prussian schools. And then this report gets picked up, this report in French gets picked up in English and translated into English by an English woman named Sarah Austin. Uh, And then this English translation of a French report on Prussian schools gets reprinted in America in various editions, including uh, um, editions that have been shortened, changed, shifted. Um, But the whole the whole discussion uh, is often pointing back to this report, pointing back to these schools. Um, And then there's the question of how accurately does this report even reflect the schools in Prussia? it does accurately reflect the fact that schools in Prussia were systematized and professionalized. But beyond that, it's not really clear. <laughs>
2: well, we, we've skipped ahead a little bit in the, the, the book. I, I want to go back to talk about, um, there, there's this, this chapter where we talk about, there's a foil that kind of serves against the, the very, even if it's non-sectarian, still a very Christian religious approach towards public education. But um, you note the role of Josiah Quincy and James Carter in, in Boston and Massachusetts um, in a short-lived attempt to have a, a very dis- a less religious um, form of education. What happened there, and how did that um, influence this this growing movement?
1: Yeah, great question. So, uh, chapter three is the question is the, the chapter that deals with the foil example, and that's a chapter on Massachusetts. Um. And basically the chapter deals with these two attempts to bring these reforms that we've been talking about, montreal education and also professional teacher training schools into Massachusetts in the 1920s. And there are significant and sustained attempts to do this in the 20s, especially to bring Montreal education to Boston and to found a state-sponsored teacher training college. Uh, James Carter is the major mover and shaker behind teacher training college, and the the mayor of Boston is trying to bring Montreal education to Boston, uh, Josiah Quincy, because he thinks that this will be a great way to reduce costs for education. Um, and so both these people launch significant campaigns to, to bring these reforms to Massachusetts, to Boston, but both of the campaigns fail. And at the very least we can say that neither of these campaigns while they were certainly had christianity in the background they were not front loading their christian uh ideals uh christianity was not the driving force the driving motivator behind behind them um so the the driving force for bringing montreal education to boston that was talked about was economics and the uh, the Christian rhetoric had not yet really pervaded James Carter's attempts to found a state sponsored Christian uh, teacher training school. So, basically, the, the what this chapter does is to hold up these reform efforts and to say if we look at these reform efforts in light of what earlier historiography has often said has been most important, we find that they're not actually working. Um, What is going to work in later chapters for for implementing similar reforms, monitorial education sort of falls off because we we get better ways of of teaching. But state-sponsored training schools certainly do get implemented. uh, And the people who are arguing for it when it is implemented are consistently using Christian rhetoric and saying that we need these schools in order to train Christian teachers to teach our children how to read the Bible, to train them as Christian citizens for the Republic.
2: And so as we move into the the movements that do work a bit better, as, as this Prussian version, whether or not it's accurate or not, has, has made its way into the American consciousness, you've already mentioned Horace Mann, who gets a lot of the credit, but you really spotlight someone who um, maybe has been less... Uh, Credited with um, educational reform, that's in this the Unitarian minister Charles Brooks. So, could you talk a little bit about his influence, and then and how his uh, his reforms uh, dovetailed with Horace Mann and and that and that relationship?
1: Yep, great, yeah. So uh, basically, most modern historiography of education picks up with Horseman. It just starts with we have Horseman and he's in his office in Massachusetts and he's doing great things and then we go forward. Uh, but one of the major contributions I think my book offers is to say, well, okay, but how did Horace Mann get his job? Uh, his job is a state-sponsored job and uh, he didn't advocate for his job being created. He was just appointed to it. So why is it that he has a job? And I think the, the reason basically is because, uh, due to this figure that you mentioned, Charles Brooks, who was a Unitarian minister. And Charles Brooks uh, had, a, served, uh, had a long career as a pastor. And after many years as a pastor, sort of got worn out and tired. And so he, tra- he traveled to Europe. He was also, uh, his, his health was frail. So he traveled to Europe in an effort to rejuvenate and recover uh, and see different things. He spent a long time traveling around Europe. He traveled all over through England and France and down to Italy. Uh, Did not spend much time in Prussia or Germany. Uh, Came back and on his way home from England, spent significant time with this German figure named Nicholas Heinrich Julius, who was traveling to America to study American prisons. And Charles Brooks talks to Julius about schools in Prussia, which are beginning to uh, catch the attention of Americans and of the French, especially through the Cousin Report. And it's only actually on this trip home that Brooks really gets inspired that with this idea that we need to implement these Prussian reforms in Massachusetts. But he is inspired and he returns and starts literally traveling the state uh, in this campaign to start a teacher teacher training college sponsored by the state and to start uh, a board of education with someone at its head which is eventually gonna become Horace Mann. And as a result, I think largely of his campaign, we get initially the founding of this state board of education and then Horace Mann gets appointed to be the secretary of the board of education, and Brooks is still there the whole time. Uh, he joins Horace Mann on Horace Mann's trips. Horace Mann is required to travel to to every county in the state during his his time, and Charles Brooks joins him on several of those trips. And it's largely, or it's immediately after one of those uh, joint trips that that the Initiative for founding a state-sponsored teacher training college really takes off. So this is something that Charles Brooks has been pushing the whole time. Um, But after Charles Brooks' successful push for the state for the uh, board of education, he's now able to successfully push for a state-sponsored teacher training college, and then that gets founded. uh, And then Charles Brooks sort of passes off the scene and um, goes back to his career as a pastor and other things. But it's largely through his advocacy that we got these sort of foundations of the public education system in Massachusetts.
2: It's so interesting. And so then as we move from Massachusetts, you have another uh, focus case study in Ohio. How, how did Ohio both resemble and then depart from the the common school awakening in Massachusetts? And then maybe could you talk a little bit about uh, groups who weren't uh, white Protestants? How did they react to this um otherwise very white Protestant version of a religious education.
1: Yep, great. So following the uh, chapter on Massachusetts where I talk about Charles Brooks and Horace Mann, then I moved to Ohio. And I have two chapters on Ohio. Uh, and the first one is basically, tells a, a pretty similar narrative to the narrative in Massachusetts about how we get uh, the appointment of a superintendent of public education, uh, who's gonna become Samuel Lewis. And, uh, in this instance, in Ohio, it's largely through the efforts of Calvin Stowe, who is married to Harriet Beecher Stowe, who's going to become famous a decade later. Uh, and Calvin Stowe is a professor of theology at Lane Seminary, and he travels to Europe, actually to buy books. But while he's in Europe buying books, he studies Prussian education, and he returns to... Uh, to Ohio and speaks in front of the Ohio legislature and advocates for basically the same reforms that Charles Brooks has been pushing for in Massachusetts. And as a result, we get the foundation, the founding of uh, this office of the superintendent of public education. It's basically the same office that Horace Mann held in Massachusetts, and we also get a, a similar office founded in numerous other states, but I'm just doing the case studies of Massachusetts and Ohio. Um, and it gets up and running and we 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 see it's it's there and it's great and it looks like we have the same thing happening in Ohio that we have happening in Massachusetts the biggest trick is that Ohio is actually much more diverse than Massachusetts and so there are groups in Ohio that push back against uh, the systemization much earlier than we see groups pushing back on it in Massachusetts because we've had, uh, Ohio is much closer to the Southern border. So there's a significant group of African-Americans there. Uh, also, there's a lot more tension over race in Cincinnati, especially. Um, Ohio also has a much larger population of German people uh, who have who are immigrating at this time. Uh, people who are still speaking German and fun- functioning c- culturally as Germans. Ohio also has a much larger group of Catholics at this point in time. Um, and so all of these groups push back against this bureaucratization of schools in Ohio because that bureaucratization has been used to push for what they perceive to be white Protestant schools. Uh, and so the African-Americans rightfully say, we can't go to these schools, this is a problem. And the Catholics also say, When we send our children to these schools, they read the King James Bible, and we'd rather have them read a Catholic translation of the Bible. Um, And what's really notable is that the the African-Americans are are able to speak into this situation, but they're not really listened to, so they just get dismissed. Catholics, however, have a large enough presence that they do get listened to. And uh, they're actually even early on in the movement, uh, similarly, in favor of this increasing bureaucratization of schools, uh, because they want to Christianize the country too. But as they come to see how it gets implemented, and as they come to see the uh, what they perceive to be dangers in the teaching of what they perceive to be this largely Protestant Christianity, they say, "I'm not sure we can get behind this anymore." And so, Samuel Lewis, the superintendent of public education functions for a few years in his office but then he just gets exhausted uh his his background is actually as a Methodist minister and he's been traveling doing the Methodist circuit writing thing but on behalf of education and he's traveling way too much and he can't do it anymore so he 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 resigns and uh the legislature does not appoint someone to take his position again the position just drops it it falls off and the reason it drops off is largely because the Catholics and the Protestants are no longer cooperating on this. And we have lots of other dissenting voices, African-Americans, for instance, Hmm. raising questions about the results of the characterization. And so uh, this is an example of how by the late 1830s and by the early 1840s, this sort of Protestant consensus has started to fall apart and is no longer powering the same reforms that had powered earlier on.
2: Well, David, you've you've given us such a great survey in the Common School Awakening of issues that will continue to become important and even to the present day in conversations that are being had over public education and the role that religion plays in that. And so I'm so thankful for you taking the time to come and, and share about your book with us. Before we say goodbye, I'm curious to know what are you working on at the moment?
1: Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, so, I teach at a seminary currently, and this first book was written when I was in a history department, um, just writing something that was fun and I hope would get me a job. Uh, now, my job is in a seminary, and so I've shifted pretty decisively back to m- more Christian topics. Uh, and I teach in a seminary that's aligned with the Reformed tradition. Uh, it's, a, it's a denominational seminary, but r- we're broadly Reformed. And so I'm working on the beginning stages of a book that will be called something like uh, Confessional Kin, A History of the Reformed Communities in the United States. And the basic idea behind the book is that uh, traditionally church history in the United States has been done through denominational histories. Denominational histories sort of rule of the day. Uh, we have histories of the PCUSA or its various subgroups, uh, histories of denomination that westerns are part of the rca or other groups but denominations are uh having less and less cultural influence and with less and less uh power in america and so denominational histories don't seem to matter nearly as much but i still want to say that these traditions matter and so i'm going to try to write a book that pulls together the many various groups that could Uh, make a claim to be reformed and tells a single narrative that interweaves them all together um while noting their distinctives but also emphasizing their commonalities and the ways that they've cooperated uh throughout time
2: well well, that sounds like an absolutely fascinating project i hope it gets written soon so that we can have you back on and hear all about it thank you um again this has been a conversation with david comline talking about the common school awakening religion and the transatlantic roots of american public education available now from oxford university press david thanks so much for joining us thank you and thanks to our listeners for tuning in to this episode of new books in american studies you can visit our website at newbooksnetwork.com where you can find more interviews in any discipline or, or subfield that you might be interested in and of course if you found this interview interesting the best thing that you could do is share it with a friend who you think might also enjoy the conversation that David and I have had here today that's the best way that you can support what we're doing here at the new books network that's it for now and I hope you have a great day